My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is at TrainFully, and my personal account is at Elastic Golfer. In this episode, we're meeting with Dr. Kevin Chapman. Dr. Chapman is a clinical psychologist and founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. So he specializes in evidence-based treatment for anxiety, and he's been featured by A&E, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Huffington Post, The Washington Post, The Associated Press, Men's Fitness, Men's Health, and the list literally goes on and on. So we are extremely fortunate to have him here, and I strongly recommend checking out his website, drkevinchapman.com, and give him a follow on Twitter. His handle is at drkchap. So Dr. Chapman is going to share with us some strategies we can use to help deal with stress and improve our game. Because to be a high performer, we must excel both physically and psychologically. And when I think of the high performing athletes that I've worked with, and I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with some super elite athletes, they are mentally tough. And it's that mental toughness that separates them from everybody else. It's what separates great athletes from good ones. When we think about Tiger Woods and Tom Brady, sure, they have the physical skills, but it's the mental skills that separate them. And we could even argue that even in their primes, some of their competitors had superior physical skills. But because the competitors couldn't match the mental skills of Tiger or TB12, they had a hard time keeping up. And Dr. Chapman's going to talk about what makes Tiger Woods and Tom Brady so great in this episode. But what I want you to take away from the episode is just like how we have to train our body to be strong, we also have to train our mind to be strong. We have to train ourselves for mental toughness. And so with that in mind... There are five things that come up in this conversation with Dr. Chapman that I think we should all work on. One, be self-directed. Athletes who are mentally tough are intrinsically motivated, which means that they're not motivated by external rewards like money or fame or approval or attention. They're motivated by internal rewards. Their reward is the enjoyment they get from playing their sport and competing against other athletes. When you're intrinsically motivated, it is a lot easier to be disciplined, to get up at 6 a.m. to train and practice and to prioritize things like healthy eating and good sleep. Now, the good news is intrinsic motivation can be cultivated. And Dr. Chapman will talk about that in this episode. Two, 
Talk to yourself and be positive. Negative self-talk can be a performance killer. And Dr. Chapman is going to provide us with some really good strategies we can use to improve our self-talk so that when things get tough and the negative thoughts start creeping in, we can fall back on these strategies. We want to become methodical and robotic in our self-talk and in our approach. Three, visualize and meditate. Visualization and meditation are extremely powerful. In fact, Dr. Chapman calls them the cheat code of mental skills. I meditate regularly, but I only started recently because I always thought it would be too difficult. I didn't think I'd be able to do it, but I learned how to do it. And it's just like anything else. If you practice, you become better at it. And the best way I can explain or describe what meditation does for your mind is to compare it to strength training. Meditation is like strength training for your mind. It makes your mind stronger and it gives you the ability to focus and shut out distractions. Four, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Elite athletes are comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Fortunately, getting comfortable being uncomfortable is a process that can be learned because one of the main reasons why a situation might feel uncomfortable is because we're worried other people might be judging us. And this brings us back to being intrinsically motivated. Don't look for other people's approval. Focus on why you're in that moment. You're there because you enjoy it. And that moment is for you, nobody else. And five, be prepared. The importance of preparation cannot be overstated. Preparation is the key to success. And the bigger the opportunity, the bigger the preparation. When it comes to physical preparation, that's what your training and practice are for. And when it comes to training, you can count on the Train Fully Golf Fitness Program to get you physically prepared. The Train Fully Program is an innovative at-home program that was developed over 20 years with elite athletes. You can count on Train Fully to get you physically prepared, and you can pick up your program at trainfully.com. But we also need to prepare mentally, and we need to be mentally prepared for everything and anything, including stressful situations. And Dr. Chapman is going to talk about the importance of emotional exposure in this episode. Now, guys, if you want to learn more, I strongly recommend reaching out to Dr. Chapman. Again, his website is drkevinchapman.com. Enjoy the episode. All right. So joining us today, Dr. Kevin Chapman. Dr. Chapman, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you. So Dr. Chapman, why don't we start out with you uh, describing a little bit about yourself and the work that you do with athletes? Yeah. So um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I have a sports performance background as well. So I have kind of these dual areas that I work in, right? So I do clinical work, primarily anxiety is my specialty. And then I also have sports performance that I do as well with athletes. I was a two-sport athlete in college. I was a sprinter and also played football, uh, primarily offense and running back. So 
you know, I have a vested interest, obviously, not only in the psychology side of things, but also in just enhancing athletes with their mental skills and their performance. So speaking of anxiety, I want to tell you about what I experienced leading up to our conversation here today. Okay. So I reached out to you about a month ago and I asked if you'd come on the show and you kindly said yes. And I know that you're at the top of your field. And I know that you are an excellent communicator because I've heard you speak before. And so right from the get-go, I understood that this conversation here is an opportunity for me. It's an opportunity for me to learn from you. And then it's an opportunity for my uh, listeners to learn from you as well. About a week ago, I started to feel some anxiety because I started to think about what would happen if I wasn't properly prepared and maybe I wouldn't ask very good questions. And I started to worry that maybe I might lose this opportunity with you, right? And so I started to get stressed out a little bit, but that stress pushed me to prepare. And because I felt that stress, I am prepared. So I guess my question is, can anxiety and stress actually be good for us? That's a great question. I really am humbled by you saying that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, 100% emphatically, yes. See, here's the thing, like, and we talk about this a lot. Anxiety is rarely a problem unless it's chronic. Just like anger, frustration, disgust, which I'm assuming many golfers I know experience all that, right? So at the end of the day, all of those emotions are trying to help us navigate successfully. So like you just laid out, anxiety is all about potential future threat. It's never about this moment. Like you said, it's about the anticipation of threat. And anxiety is propelling us, whether it's clinically or normally or as an athlete, to respond effectively by preparation to that threat. And once you do that, the anxiety naturally reduces and then it's reinforced the next time you have the same sort of threat. So absolutely helpful. So then what happens, because I've had that anxiety, even though I am, I feel like maybe I'm prepared, but I've had this fear of failure that becomes so intense that it kind of takes over my, my movement patterns. I start worrying about what other people might think. Maybe I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to lose this opportunity. And as I was preparing for our conversation here, I was trying to think of like a commonality between those moments. And it actually, you know, it's kind of hard to come up with one commonality. I think in some of the moments, I feel like I personally don't belong in that moment. But also, I think I've had moments where I thought maybe other people thought I didn't belong in that moment. And right. so when we get that fear of failure, what is that? Why does it happen? And is there a common sort of root cause? Yeah, so that's a great question, Thomas. I think that the fear of failure typically is under the category known as social anxiety. As a diagnosis, social anxiety disorder is the third most common mental health condition. So if we go on the other end of the continuum, Social anxiety disorder is a, like a very common thing. The irony of that is that social anxiety generally is very normal though. So in other words, we define social anxiety, generally speaking, as a fear of negative evaluation, right? That I'm gonna be in some sort of performance or social situation, which is kind of one in the same, where somebody can negatively evaluate me, right? It's like my favorite examples. I love Chick-fil-A, right? I go there, give me a number two, Yes, of course, I want to eliminate. Don't ask me that, right? So it's like, te technically, you could go to a Chick-fil-A drive-through and somebody could be like, you know, look at you and point. Because any social situation we find ourselves in, Thomas, has the potential of negative evaluation. It's unlikely, but it has the potential. So the key is recognizing, number one, 
social anxiety is something we all experience. And just like you said earlier, it's something that we have to navigate successfully to prepare us for not looking foolish, right? But at the same time, when it's chronic, it could also be problematic. So the cause of that is really just a human need for approval. Like none of us want to look foolish or to do something that's humiliating or embarrassing. That's a normal human emotional experience. None of us want to experience that. So that's the root of it. But when it becomes problematic and I start avoiding situations and it impairs my ability to perform, that's when it's a problem. So then when we find ourselves in that type of situation where we're worried about what other people are going to think of us, right? Is there anything we can do to snap out of it in that moment? You know, of course. So a question, as you can imagine, Thomas, I get a lot. And one of my mottos is you don't send a soldier out to battle without basic training. So you've seen a gun and you know how to hold one, right? So you've seen Captain America jump out of a helicopter, but have you done it yourself, right? So it's when you go to these situations and flood yourself, you're really not coping that well. And it forms a powerful learning association in my brain. It's like the next time I'm in that situation, it felt horrible. So why would I want to be in it? So I'm going to peace out or escape and leave. So the key you don't send a soldier out to battle without basic training is preparation in advance. You literally lay out a blueprint of the scenario. What's the situation? I'm going to encounter so-and-so, this, this uh, club pro, hypothetically, and you know they're well-known. And my thoughts before I go, oh, they're going to think I'm the worst golfer they've ever seen, right? They're going to think that, it, like, why am I even picking up a club, right? So then I'm learning to counter that thought with what I call disputing questions. Disputing questions, Thomas, are evidence-based questions, not feeling-based questions. For example, what's the evidence that I'm going to humiliate myself? Well, I feel really anxious. Okay. Does feeling anxious mean I'm going to humiliate myself? No. Okay. Are you 100% sure you're going to humiliate yourself? Of course not. Do you have a crystal ball? Who does? Nobody. Okay. So what's a more flexible way to view that, right? Um, He's a pro, he expects me to have to learn, right? That's one option. Another option is he doesn't expect me to be perfect. That's why I'm taking lessons. That's another one. So you come up with these alternatives, Thomas, and then put them on in your head and then declare them. It decreases your arousal. You get the data that disconfirms it when you go and that's a learning experience. So then the next time you do it, you need reps. The next time you do it, just like the driving range, you need reps. So once you get those reps, your brain is now like, meh, not a huge deal anymore, but you got to prepare in advance for that. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And so self-talk is really important. And you, then so that self-talk is something that we should probably implement into our practice then as well, like part of our almost. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that when I'm working with a golfer in particular, you know, the one sport on earth, right, where the court, like the, the there's a huge discrepancy between how long you're on the course and how much game play you actually have. Yeah. 11 to 13 minutes versus five hours on the course, you have to prepare mentally for every single hole. So yes, of course, you use your mental skills before you even set foot on the course. Okay. So then there are athletes like Tiger Woods, like Tom Brady, that this doesn't seem to affect them, right? It seems like the more unfamiliar the moment and the bigger it is, the better these guys perform. And these are like super elite, uh, high achievers. When we're thinking about mindset, what's the biggest difference in mindset between high achievers and underperformers? 
Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> the biggest difference I've learned and noticed in the high achieving elite level athletes or what I call mentally tough athletes are that they have more of a process oriented mentality as opposed to an outcome based mentality. They're not really thinking of the outcome when they're playing Thomas. The thing that they're thinking about is getting better and enjoying the sport itself. So it's tactically, what can I learn and improve? Mechanically, what can I learn and improve? Mentally and physically, what can I learn and improve? Because they recognize that it's the process of competing that leads to the outcome, not the other way around. And that requires you to be very intentional about the things you're going to say to yourself in advance. Again, Thomas, you know this. This isn't for everybody. So if you want to be kind of an average golfer, like most people that way, you don't have to do those things. But if you want to be elite level, right, it's kind of like a rapper I like. He said they don't want to squeeze, but they want the juice. So in other words, it's like ultimately you have to prepare like an elite level athlete. And that requires you to put your mental skills equal, if not more, to your physical skills in advance. Well, that's interesting because I've noticed as soon as you said the enjoyment of competition, when I think about in my sports history, when I'm playing my best, like I can remember moments sitting in the bus, heading off to compete and just being so excited to compete, not even thinking about what the end result might be, just so excited to go out there and compete against other athletes. And so is there a way if we're in the bus, like, can we just flip the switch? If we've noticed that we're not in that sort of competition mode, can we flip the switch on the way to the links or on the way to the <laughs> That's a great question, Thomas. I mean, I, I think it, you know, what I like to reference this as is it's the difference between an intervention and prevention. It's like most people that get in touch with me, for example, they want an intervention. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So it's like, oh, the trains have fallen off the tracks and help me dock or KCHAP, which is my nickname, stuff like that. I'm like, I can help you, but prevention is much better than that. It's like, let's work on these things when things aren't falling off the rails so that you are insulated, right? When things do get hard for you, right? So I say that to say that though it's possible to flip that switch, it's way easier <laughs> to work on the switch in advance so that the switch flip, to use your example, is automatic, yeah. when it's time to perform. And that's what the Brady's and the Tigers do is that that's part of their mentality when they're at the breakfast table. It's not something that they're thinking about when they get to the bus, they're doing it on the bus, but they're doing it at home while they're eating bacon. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So is it possible for all of us to be more like them? 100%. And that's the beauty of the human mind, which is why we do what we do is that, you know, again, I always tell people, Thomas, you're getting a sense of my personality here, but well, it's like, if you choose to accept this mission, creepy fingers, maniacal laugh, you're going to have to be reprogrammed. And the beauty of the human mind is that that's a possibility or we'd be wasting our time with our conversation. So if you're willing, again, to squeeze, then you can have the juice. But if you're not willing to squeeze, you can't have the juice because you got to do what they're doing, right? But yeah, it's absolutely possible. So that's what I was I was thinking about. So then I'm thinking about what I do. So I I train people. And, and when I train people, I'm looking to cause adaptive changes in their body that are going to improve the way they move. Right. But ultimately it's the brain that controls the body. So although it is important to train the body, it's also just as important to train the brain. So what can we do in practice or, or at home or during our workouts, even to develop our mind and, and prepare ourselves for those big moments? 
Yeah, great question. I think there's a couple things. I'm, pr- I'm very practical. I think you know that, Thomas. So I'll give it like there's a couple things I'm th- that come to mind when you ask me that. The one thing that comes to mind where I'm kind of like maniacal laugh and smirk emoji is when people say, oh, muscle memory this, muscle memory that. And, you know, that's big in golf. You know that. But people who do what I do, we're all about neuroplasticity, which is the precursor to muscle memory. If you want to have good muscle memory and good mechanics, you have to work on the program in, the, in your brain first, right? So the imagery associated with that muscle memory is the key to changing it. So what I'm saying is one very important factor is what I call the cheat code of mental skills. And that is creating mental imagery and visualization. Like it is so incredibly important for me to be at home, like club in hand, um, driver in hand, wherever I am to block out distractions and to literally imagine and listen to an audio recording actually of the images of a like perfect drive, for example, a perfect getting up and down shot, things like that. Because what will happen when I'm on the green, if I do that, if I do that enough times at home, is that all I need is like a second or two of that same image. And my brain downloads that on the course and my mechanics are crazy good. So number one, I'd say practicing mental imagery and visualization off the course so that it's automatic on the course. Number two, I think you got to also identify what are my negative self-talk statements. In order to change that, Thomas, you got to identify what you're saying to yourself currently. Once you do that, then the strategy I really like is coming up with five like golf specific affirmations, as we would say. And I'd say like, I get up and down, right? I'm a great chipper, like things like that, whatever it might be. And I externalize those thoughts. So I see them a lot. So I put them on a wall, put them on a glove, I put them on a poster, whatever it might be so that I can internalize it. And when things get rough on the course, I'm able to say that as opposed to the negative self-talk. And then I can recover when I had a bad shot by saying that again, doing breathing skills and using my imagery. So if I'm like a robot on the course, I look up and all of a sudden I'm 10 under, right? Right. (laughs) So I say that to say that if I'm practicing self-talk in a systematic way, if I'm using mental imagery in a systematic way, and I'm using breathing skills in a systematic way, there's no switch to flip, right? I'm basically a machine on the course and every single shot is essentially the same in terms of my preparation for it. Should we schedule meditation like a workout or like practice? Is that something we should be doing every day? Absolutely. For how long? Good question. It depends. So, you know, depending on like, if I'm working with somebody clinically, it's different than like say working with an athlete. So if I'm working with an athlete, you know, there's strategies that you can use that you can really program yourself. So here's, here's an example. I would say that some audio clips that I listen to and I get clients to listen to are uh, like maybe like six minutes and 29 seconds, not a lot. Just trying to get me in the present moment, mindfulness, which I know you've heard of mindfulness and we all know mindfulness. But I do that twice a day for two reasons. Number one, before I go to sleep, which is relaxing. But number two, I do that schedule regardless of what's happening that day. As soon as I wake up, ironically, Thomas, because cortisol, which is the stress hormone that's released when I'm going through something, is good in short bursts, but it's really bad long term. And cortisol is highest in the human body as soon as I wake up, ironically. You know, you get up on the wrong side of the bed. There's truth to that. So I always get athletes and clinical clients to do some sort of mindfulness meditation as soon as they wake up and right before they go to sleep to get in the routine of it. Again, reps, 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 reps. 
But at the same time, if we're doing mental imagery that's sports specific, I tend to get them to do that about three days a week, 30 minutes, distraction-free, headphones on, club in hand. Don't talk to me. I'm listening to it. My eyes are closed and I'm using it on a loop. So I'm looping the imagery over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And then when I'm on the, on the course, I don't need to do that. I just need to see it. So then what about body language? How does body language affect our performance? Because you see Tiger just marching on the way to a shot where you have other guys, they're not performing well, their shoulders are, are slouched. If we're playing poorly and we're not confident, but we act confident, does that have an impact? That's an interesting question. I would say it does simply because emotions, you said body language, which is true. Emotions are really facial expressions. Like from a very simplistic standpoint, we can tell somebody's emotional experience based on what they're showing us non-verbally, right? So with that being said, the high road to emotional change, Thomas, is what you said. If I change my action, that changes my thoughts and my physiological arousal. If I change my thoughts, it changes my physiological arousal and my action is bi-directional. I say that to say that all emotions have three parts, thoughts, physical feelings in my body and behavior. And if I'm changing my action, even if I'm not thinking it, then that influences what I'm thinking, which influences how I'm feeling. So absolutely, yes, that's the high road to emotional change to your point. Okay, so then when we don't play well or we don't make the golf team, like something big, like we don't make the golf team, we don't qualify for a certain tour, what is the best way to handle that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know, as you know, that's a complex thing because there's probably a lot of moving parts with that. But I would say that the one practical thing I'd say is that I get my athletes in the habit of asking themselves a question after every single competition, despite the outcome. And it's a question, it's what did I learn today? And ultimately from taking what did I learn today, they come up with a few bullet points. And in those three or four bullet points, they fix whatever led to the outcome, whether it's a good outcome or it's a bad outcome. If they keep that, again, process mentality, they're not able to recover from poor performances and the negative consequences of maybe not making the cut and stuff like that by fixing it at practice and then competing in the next moment. How can, and you're not a swing coach, so I, I know that this might be a challenging question for you, but I mean, it seems like it would be a good thing to try to recreate fear in our practice somehow, right? Is that something that you've worked with or that you have some ideas on? You know, that's a great question. And I think that you know, to your point, yeah, of course I'm not a swing coach, but that certainly holds true for our approach in psychology regardless, right? To your point. And that's what I call emotional exposure, Thomas. So that's the term that I use a lot is emotional exposure. Creating stressful situations on the golf course is a way for you to regulate your arousal and to still utilize the mental skills we're talking about to be able to overcome you know, adversity. So 100% am a huge proponent of that, whether it be for a golfer or a pitcher, the quick example outside of golf. I like to give athletes examples outside of golf so that they can think about it in golf so they can step outside of themselves. One example I love is I was working with a set of pitchers at a, a D1 university and I had their teammates heckling the crap out of them. <laughs> uh, like, Oh, we yarded you last time. Oh, here we go. Drop change again, right over the plate. And they had to utilize the mental skills. I think you see where I'm going with that Thomas in that moment in order to still be able to throw some heat and catch them looking right. 
So I appreciate, I know you're a very busy guy. I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to, to meet with us. Yeah. If people want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah, um, they can go to my website, uh, drkevinchapman.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on social media. So um, Dr. Kevin Chapman's on Instagram. So Dr. Kevin Chapman is my handle on Instagram, at um, Dr. K Chap on Twitter. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So I'm pretty easy to find I'm all over the place with talking about these things. So no, I'd be, it'd be an honor and a privilege if you all want to reach out with any sort of questions or any sort of updates. Thank you so much, Dr. Chapman. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom.